Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, welcome to Bridge Church. Um, I'm excited to be here uh, with you for a new series that we're jumping into um, on the book of Daniel. Uh, I get to kind of start us off and give our lead pastor, James, a a break for the, the weekend. But, you know, I remember the first time I discovered this truth, that great and mighty is our God. You see, I did not grow up in a Christian home at all. All this stuff was new to me. My freshman year in college is when I started on this faith journey. And I still, I mean, college was still one of the greatest times of my life. I I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philly, uh, incredible uh, experience there. But one of the things that I remember is that as I was growing spiritually, I was also growing intellectually. I was also growing just, you know, in the sense of like culture and understanding who I was. I majored in Africana studies and sociology. It was all this great stuff. But every once in a while, I would feel these tensions between my spiritual journey and where I was at in the, in the world that I was in in college. I remember my senior year um, when, you know, I was leading a, a student group on campus and, you know, I got a chance to be a part of a senior honor society. Well, I got the invitation to be. Um, it was called Sphinx Senior Honor Society. Now, part of the deal to be in this honor society is you had to pledge in order to get in. Now, this wasn't quite on the level of Omega Sci-Fi where, you know, you know, there's branding and all those other like hardcore months type things involved that our pastor knows about because, you know, he went through that journey. But for a day, I got a taste of what it looked like to not be in control. Because you see what happens is, you know, they lined us up and it was a group of us and, you know, about 20 or so uh, students. And, and then at one point they blindfold you. <laughs> oh, Yeah. And then they, like, put you in a car, and you don't know where you're going, take you out the car, we're walking, and all I know is, you know, when they finally take off the blindfolds, I'm, like, in the woods someplace, right? And then at that point, you know, they have you do all these different, you know, things. And I remember, you know, at some point they have us chanting, there's this stuff about Egypt, and I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? And I remember, but the thing that was interesting was the tension of what it felt like to not be in control. And not only to not be in control, but to not be in control when you have a whole group of people that are all expecting you to do the same thing. What does it look like? What do you do? Do you still conform or do you not? Like, what what does that look like to to step away in the midst of that kind of tension, in the midst of that type of journey? And also at times in college when when I remember just being in this sense of like, Seeing, hearing all these ideologies and these beliefs and perspectives in which people were challenging my faith and wondering, is God still in control? Perhaps you have been there yourselves at some point. The interesting thing, as I've been in ministry for almost 20 years now, the The reality is that most of the time I've seen people step away from their faith. It's not because of something that they've read in a book. It's not some type of 
intellectual challenge or difficulty. It's the perspective that begins to doubt that God is still in control. Because as we look around us and we see just even in our news feeds or our timelines and, and we see death and we see corruption and we see violence and, and, we, and we see, you know, impeachment inquiries and we see immigration struggles and we look at these things and go, why, like, there's so much seeming chaos happening. Is it possible that God is still in control? Well, it's helpful that the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. And we're not the first to actually wrestle with these perspectives. And the first place that the Bible kind of anchors us in, in Genesis chapter 1, is the realization that this was not how God intended it in the first place. We see in creation in Genesis 1 and 2, this creation that's completely good. And we see that get immediately corrupted in chapter 3 by humanity rebelling against God's intention. And when that rebelling happened, we see sin and death enter into the world, the chaos that we see so frequently today. But even in the midst of that, God had a plan. And we see very at the same time that this is happening, and another covert operation taking place to still select a group of people to give the world a picture of what it looked like to honor God and what it looked like to trust him as being in control. He starts in Genesis chapter 22, just to fast forward the story, with a guy named Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I mean, he said, not only will I make you numerous, but I will also give you authority. I will also give you power to, look at that, possess the gate of your enemies. The gates in ancient times was the, was the first defense and he's, uh, you know, against an, uh, an enemy, against an intruder. And he's saying, look, you, you're, these, you will possess their gates and you will actually demonstrate what it looks like for God to be in control. And we see Abraham get blessed with Isaac and Jacob, and you see, you know, them come out of Egypt with Moses and the Red Sea parting and, and the nations hearing of the story of God working through this people. But you know how, like, there's some details involved that, you know, sometimes when we download those apps and we just kind of go scroll, 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 agree, <laughs> and not actually know what we're signing up for. There were some conditions that were involved. Uh, Moses made it clear in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In the context, he says, and I'll read a couple verses ahead of verse 27, which you see. It says, when you father children and children's children and have gone, grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil, in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I will call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. 
You will not live long in it, but will utterly be destroyed. And then it says, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. In fact, the exact opposite of possessing the gates that he promised would take place. And that is where we find ourselves in the book of Daniel. What does it look like when the people who God said, I'm going to show my control in you, decide to rebel against him, and all of a sudden they lose control of the situation? What does it look like to be faithful in the midst of that kind of circumstance? What does it look like to be a counterculture in the midst of a culture that says and defines reality, truth, goodness, right right and wrong, completely opposite from the standards and statutes that God has prepared and presented? Well, that's what Daniel and his friends are in the midst of. And that's the thing that we have to wrestle with still in this day and time in which we live. So with that context, let's jump into Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, I kind of skipped through a lot of Israelite history just to kind of for the sake of time, but the reality is that after Moses in, you know, uh, hands the baton to Joshua, they go into the promised land. God blesses them with a nation. They build a temple uh, to him. God shows up the first day, the grand opening with smoke and fire, and everyone recognizes who they are. Jerusalem and Israel become such a dominant force that people like the Queen of Sheba comes all the way over from Africa to perceive and to, to, to see what it is that they got going on there. And they have and this incredible exchange of ideas. Israel was a global power. But because they did not heed the warnings, not only through Moses, but repeatedly through the prophets, Finally comes this day, one of the saddest moments in Scripture, where all of a sudden, the very thing that God said that he was going to put his hand on and bless, he withholds from because of their rebelliousness, because of their injustice. And it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, besieged Babylon. He took it. He not only took it, but the people. And there's this picture that we, that we could see of just fire and smoke and devastation as a foreign Gentile nation comes in, ransacks Jerusalem, the place that God's presence was supposed to be and dwell, goes into the temple, it says, and captures the people. Look at what it says in in, uh, the next verse, in verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his gods, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is utter and complete failure. You get a little note right here. Just we'll, We'll get back to this, but the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand. We'll we'll get back to that. But it says that Nebuchadnezzar and his crew, they come in into the place, and if you know anything about the temple and and the worship ceremonies, only the high priest and only once a year was supposed to go in to the Holy of Holies where these vessels were held. And here these people that weren't even supposed to be on the grounds come in, kicking the door, waving the (laughs) 4-4, 
coming in and grabbing everything in there and just ransack the temple of God. No judgment befalls them. And they take their stuff and then they bring it with them to Babylon, not just anywhere, but to the house of his God. And this was the ultimate trophy to say, like, not only am I taking your lunch money, but I'm going to buy something and just, just kind of flaunt it so that everyone can see that I took it from you and there's nothing that you or your God can do about it. He takes the stuff. And if that were not a picture enough, the, the Bible Project is great. Uh, if you ever want to watch some great videos about the Bible on YouTube, uh, they offer some great resources. But this is how they summarize this event. The entire national structure of the kingdom, which was thought to be ordained by God himself, came crashing down, destroyed, chaos. And if he had just taken the things, that would have been bad enough. But as empires are prone to do, he also took the people. Captured, shackled, and then made to walk over a thousand miles from Jerusalem over to Babylon, which took months to do. As they look and see in the background, turning their heads and seeing the temple in Jerusalem just up in smoke. Wondering what happened and where is God. To give you a picture of the journey, Babylon is modern day Iraq. They had to walk from Jerusalem through the country of Jordan over to Damascus, Syria, to Iraq. Now, to make matters worse, this was essentially the same journey that Abraham of Ur of the Chaldees took to go to the promised land. This is a complete reversal of fortune. And in the midst of that, we see... Babylon become the iconic symbol throughout Scripture of everything that is oppressive, evil, sinful in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation 18, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth, don't miss that, have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. You see, it doesn't even start there. In Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel, which is in Babylon, be this symbol of human independence, basically a big middle finger to God that said, oh, no, we're not going to be fruitful and throughout the earth and multiply. We're going to build a name for ourselves. And that is what Babylon represents. But here's the thing. Babylon is a symbol for any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. We all live and work in Babylon. Oh, wait, yeah, yeah, I know, I mean, somebody might have told you at some point that, you know, America's a Christian nation, right? Like, that's, that's kind of like, they might have, that's what they said. And, you know, I mean, you look at the history and you're like, where did that happen at? <laughs> what, what's Christian about slavery again? Um, what, you, oh, what? But here's the thing. America is not a Christian nation 
There is no such thing because if you understand the Bible, then you understand that we still waiting for our nation to come. Because we're not, this is, this, this is not home for me. I'm, I'm just passing through. But in the meantime, in the midst, God has a word for us just as he had for his people in Babylon, just as he had for the Jews in Rome, a, a word to, of how to be subversive, but at the same time be at, faithful to him in the midst of an oppressive, dark place. What does it look like? Well, that's what the rest of Daniel is about, is helping us to frame through these different examples of him and his friends, through the visions that God gives him, is a picture of how do we bear up under such pressure in the midst of a fallen culture. And we, so we zoom in in verse 3, and it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar decides to do is he says, okay, he gets one of his right-hand men, and said this was his strategy for kingdom building, for empire building. He didn't just come and decide to just wipe everybody out. He actually had a little bit more ingenuity than that and said, you know, I'm going to need people faithful to me, loyal to me, to actually run this ever-expanding empire. And so how about this? I'll take some of the best and the brightest. I'll come and bring them into my court. I'll reprogram them, retrain them to think like I think, give them the perspective of our kingdom and empire, and then I'll have them reign and rule like I want them to. And that is what Daniel and his friends would later be facing. Now, real quick, if you see that word, language of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans were uh, the uh, biggest ethnic group in Babylon. It's why... Abraham is called, he's from Ur of the Chaldees. And they became synonymous with magic, with astrology, with uh, supernatural perspective and all of that. And so you'll see that name becomes almost just interchangeable with Babylon because they were in the inner court in the, of the culture. But he said, we're going to teach them and have them learn our stuff and our way of thinking so then they can rule their people the way we want them to. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. There they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Oh, yeah, you see, the, 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 this is where the indoctrination process starts. But imagine after a 1,000-mile journey that takes months, you're dirty, you're tired, you're hungry, and all of a sudden, some of you get selected to this honors program, this, you know, this specific program that only the best and the brightest can, can get. You know, there was probably some type of an assessment to figure out who to separate from that. And then you come into this court, and while everybody else is out there struggling, trying to just figure out how to survive, they put before you nothing but the best. 
Matter of fact, the king's own, what the king eats is what you get to eat. What he drinks is what you get to drink. And they give you a three-year program with a full scholarship. And at the end, the exam is to not just have this test, but to appear before the most powerful person in the world in order to test out what you know. Sounds kind of affirming in some sense, right? I can see how someone could might feel like, yo, my, 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 my luck is changing here. And see, this is part of the strategy of empire. The culture complements to control. <laughs> see, yeah, 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 see. Like, it's like, yo, like, yo, I, I want you to see, I, I'm impressed by you, you know, like, I, I like your swag. Let me just appropriate your culture, right, because it's so dope. So, like, let me just kind of take what you got and then make it my own. But, you know, that's because I'm supporting you. Like, I'm feeling you. Just make sure you don't read all the, the fine details. Just click agree, and we can get on with this. And this is the pressure and this is the opportunity. How do I respond to that? See, the reality is even, you know, this year is, is the 400th year since Africans came enslaved in, a, in America. And we see this dynamics play the same thing out here, right? When you look at the uh, history of slave revolts, they like almost never happened from the house. It was the field because the people in the field knew that they were slaves, like, because they had to bear up under the burden of that all the time. But see, when you are, you know, closer to the center of power, right, like you get to like not have to work out in, in the hot sun all day. All of a, sometimes you can get confused about and almost forget that you were slave. Oh, master, like me, like, like I'm special. But the reality is like try to leave and you'll see how special you are. You're still a slave. Oh, we getting there. We getting there. So it, it specifies. So then you start to see, but it starts with the compliment. It starts with the compliment. Verse 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Some of us know him by the slave name, so. <laughs> but, but here, but see, what's in the name? You might go, okay, well, what's the big deal? They changed their names. See, here's, here's the thing, because that's where the indoctrination process started. Because if you go back to Israel, names had high, heavy significance. Daniel's name literally meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name was Yahweh is gracious. Mishael's name who is what God is. In Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. So literally every time you said their name, they were reminded of whose they were. So, so empire ain't trying to have that, right? They're like, no, see, I can't have you remembering and recalling that. So they're changed. But look at the detail in how their names were changed. See, in Babylon, Belteshazzar, instead of God is my judge, Bel, which is the God that they worship, protects your life. Shadrach, instead of Hananiah, which meant Yahweh is gracious, it's command of Aku. Mishael, who is what God is? No, 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 no. Who is as Aku is? Abednego, Yahweh is your helper? No, no, no. You are Nebo's helper. 
They specifically wanted to break them and have them a perspective where their allegiance was changed to say, no, uh you in Babylon now, things have changed. We see the picture of this for many of us who saw Roots, right? And remember when Kunta Kinte was captured and taken, and he says that this is in the book, he would say, what's your name, boy? And then he whipped him. Kunta, Kunta, Kunta. And then finally, he was like, yo, would you say Toby? Because at some point, there was this aspect of being broken in the midst of that. And many of us today carry the names, not of the ancestors that where we came from, but another name. But here's the thing, as believers, as Christians, you know, the world will continue to try to coax you to conform. See, fallen culture coaxes you to conform. Now, in this aspect, we don't get to see, we don't see a whole lot of, uh, of resistance on the point of their names. That was something they're like, look, I know who my name is or whatever. But there are these other aspects where you see the pressure, the, the knobs this, just keep turning up the heat of what does it mean to represent who I, where I'm from versus in who I am versus who you're telling me that I am. In our culture, <laughs> your name isn't Christian. Mm. you religious, judgmental, self-righteous. That's what your name is. Everything but a child of God. But it's important as we walk out of this place to remember, no, that's not who I am. That might be what you want to make me to be. That might be what you claim I am. But even in the midst of intense pressure to conform, we have to recognize who we are and whose we are. We have a name, it says in Revelation, that we don't even know yet fully what God is going to call us. That it, the, the heavenly language is so deep that we don't even have permission to speak it in this world to the same degree that we will have. You know, like our ears can't even quite contain and, and hold the goodness and the glory of who God is. That's who we are. But there's this pressure to conform. Well, what does it look like to resist? How do we respond to these pressures? Well, we see Daniel's response in the very next verse. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel, it says, but he resolved that he would not defile himself. Look at that. Not just with any food. They weren't giving him scraps with the king's food. You see, I don't got time to go into it, but if you go to Leviticus chapter 11, you see that part of the law that Moses gave the people of Israel that God gave them was had dietary restrictions. I live in a neighborhood that is, you know, still has two kosher markets, right? And so you're not going to find any pork chops in there. You're not going to find any bacon. Like, it's, it's, it's still like these specific things about what you can eat, what is lawful to eat, and what is not lawful to eat. And that this is a picture that God is painting of the fact that you're different from every other nation in the world. And so this was both a, not just a spiritual reality, but this is also political. Because he's saying, you know, I don't want... If, when God prospers me, when he, when he gives me the grace to stand in front of kings and queens, I don't want them to think that it was because of their educational system that I have this ability, that it was because of their nutritional guidelines that I have this ability. I want only God to get the credit for who I am and whose I am in their midst. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. 
You ever see sometimes the difficulty that having a unique um, dietary plan and regimen has on social environments? It can get quite awkward. You know, we're in November right now, which is Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, Turkey Day is coming. And, I mean, growing up, this was one of my favorite holidays because, you know, I just, you know, I like to eat. <laughs> you know what I mean? And our family liked to cook, and we celebrated, and we experienced food, and it was all good. Till a couple years ago. Tamika and I watched this uh, documentary on Netflix, <laughs> and um, we was like, you know what? I think we should go plant-based, yo. And we tried that during the summer, and, you know, we had a couple months under our belt. You know what I mean? We're doing the you know, kale and the Brussels sprouts, and, you know, we're hooking it up, right? And it's great. Then I go drive home for Thanksgiving to be with family. Now, I told them ahead of time, like, yo, you know, so we're doing the vegan thing. So, you know, mom's like, cool, I got you. I got you. Mom and grandma are like, yes. What that mean again, baby? So they're like, <laughs> so they're like, so no meat, right? Fish, you know what I mean? No meat, right? Like, yeah. So, so this is what our vegan, this was, this was what it looked like for us, right? Because here's the problem. Even the greens, right, got like smoked turkey and beef in it. So we can't even eat the vegetables. So we, we're trying to eat like just the, the bread. It was a struggle. It was a struggle. Now, this year, I'm on, I have a different testimony. Hey, Amen. My, my wife is still holding it down. Praise God. But. The reality is I know the difficulty of trying to live that. Now, imagine that tenfold because you're in front of the king and his people, the pressure that that puts on you. But here's the deal. Before we can see what happens next, we have to understand Daniel had already resolved in his heart, before I step foot into this dining hall, into this cafeteria, I am not going to defile myself. Many of us want to have a public platform. We want to have this public influence. But here's the reality. Private devotion precedes public declaration. See, until you get to the place where what you have resolved in your heart is already done and and put away with, you cannot be trusted with having the public platform. 3 a.m., and so-and-so's house and apartment is too late to try to figure out what your values and perspectives are. You have to resolve in your heart to not defile yourself. At the job, when they decide to, okay, let's see, let's cook the books, like, now I'm like, yo, so what are my values and my perspectives about integrity and honesty in the workplace? It's too late at that point. That ship is moving. Am I privately resolved not to defile myself? It's a question that only you can answer. You see, nobody else would have known. He was thousands of miles away from his his parents, from the temple, from nobody else. And guess what? There was a whole lot of other Hebrew boys up in there like, yo, yo, can you pass the pork chops? Like, come on. Like, yo, let me give a piece of that cafe. And it was just like, I am totally going to immerse myself in the culture that I'm in. But he decided. So what happens next? It says, then Daniel said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. You see, we skipped this part, but 
it says that God gave uh, Daniel favor in the eyes of this supervisor who was responsible for him. And he's like, yo, like, I, I like you, man, and I want to look out for you, but I'm trying to look out for my neck too, right? And, and you're trying to do this vegan thing, and, like, they come up before the, camp, the court, and y'all looking skinny and sappy, and the rest of these guys are, like, buff. That's going to be me. Like, God's going to get, you know, like, I'm going to get in trouble. So, like, I can't really, you know, I, I like you, Daniel. But So Daniel does this thing. This is very important about how we live in exile. Because this is at the point where somebody, <laughs> some Christians will start throwing Bible verses at the man. You know what I mean? But don't you know what the word says? He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to not one scripture verse because he knows he's in exile. Instead, he says, you know what? I feel, I understand where you're coming from. I, I feel the struggle. This is what we're going to do. We're here for three years. Just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days to just see it this way. And I, and I trust and believe that this way is actually going to work and be better for you and better for me. And it is that type of wisdom. It is that type of tact. It is that type of perspective in our jobs and with our families and the culture that we need to have to know how to navigate and know how to give God glory in the midst of it. The commitment to remain undefiled is countercultural. It is. It's just going to, you're going to, the question is not if you will meet resistance. The question is when and how and what will you do with it? Look at the reaction. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. At the, <laughs> this is funny because... <laughs> At the end of the 10 days, they're like, yo, y'all actually look like better than the people that are eating all the stuff that we normally give the king. Now, commentators are kind of in a debate about when it says, like, the, so the steward took away their food, if it meant, like, the whole everybody else in the court or not, or if it meant Daniel, the, the, the pronoun there is a little vague. But I kind of am laughing at myself because I'm like, well, to me, the most natural indication is they were already eating the vegetables and fruit. that They took all the people's food away. Like, y'all all vegan now. Y'all all got vegan Thanksgiving, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, would have not made him very popular um, with the rest of the exiles who was like, yo, but I, I was feeling the mac and cheese, though. You know what I mean? Like, what's up? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Daniel believed that God's restrictions were better than the cultural provisions. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's restrictions are better than the culture and even the king's provisions? Let me, let me, let me unpack that for a second. See, because see, the reality is what he's saying there is that there was this perspective. He had the opportunity. Yo, these laws, these dietary laws, all of this stuff, this is, ah, it's, it's just, you know, it's not letting me be me. And so let me just kind of immerse and let me just experiment with some things. But he believed in his heart that actually God's way was not just right and moral, but it was also good and pleasing and pleasant for him. So as a result of his confidence in that, he's like, yo, test this and watch it work out. One of the challenges we have is we see God's restrictions is just he's burdensome and he's mean and I can't participate in what everybody else in the culture is doing because look at all the fun. We used to look like, like the kid that's looking out the window, seeing all the kids play and be like, dad, why, God, like, why can't I go out there too? And Daniel was like, yo, this is better. It's better in my father's fences. It's better where he is than out there. He resolved that in his heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's restrictions for you are better than the culture's provisions? 
Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is the third time the phrase God gave appears in this scripture. We saw God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave favor to Daniel in the sight of his supervisor. And now we see God gave them learning and skill. Look at that. In all literature. I want somebody to say all. In all literature. What this is saying is that God cared about not just the spiritual, biblical, godly stuff that he was to learn, but he cared about all the literature that the Chaldeans, that the Babylonians. He said, I'm going to give you insight and perspective on what the world has to offer too, so you then know how to refute it and how to critique it from a Christian lens. One of the challenges we have as people of God is that we are afraid of what's out there and we just don't think it has anything to offer, but the reality is that all truth is God's truth. And he says, I'm going to give you perspective and wisdom in all things, and I'm going to have you to serve in excellence. And it's serving in that excellence, which is going to give you the platform, give you the perspective, so that when you need to pull out your ability to understand visions and dreams, they already trust you because you know the literature and the wisdom of the place that you are. Sometimes we kind of stop using uh, spiritual leads to, to justify not knowing and not doing our work well. If you're known as a slacker when you go to work, then that's not giving honor and glory to God. Nobody wants to hear from you then when you coming in every day late and then you want to share the gospel. That don't work that way. <laughs> Look what happens next. Therefore, they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Because they put in that work, because they had resolved in their heart not to be defiled, God was able to allow them to shine because guess what? He knew that if he allowed them to shine, he would shine too. Yeah. See, in other words, God shows up in our story when we commit to his glory. See, Part of the reason why some of us, we're like, yo, I can't trust you with that level of influence because if I put you in that space, you're going to make it all about you and not my kingdom. You're not going to look out for the other people that come through. You're not going to, you know, try to actually change the culture of the institution that you're in. You're actually going to become part of it and part of the problem. But when we commit to his glory, then he's like, oh, now I can actually work with this and have the elevation that we so desire. What is your approach to work say about your God that you serve. Last verse. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. (laughs) Now, this almost feels like a throwaway verse, like, okay, we could have just ended on the other piece. What are you doing? But as I started to study this thing, I started to realize, wow, this is probably the most powerful verse in the entire chapter. You see, Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they they would have gone into this area of the court. We know the the year 605 B.C. That's when Jerusalem was first besieged, when they were 14, 15 years old. King Cyrus would have been the fourth king in that reign. You see, after Nebuchadnezzar, his son would rule. After his son, Darius of the Medes would rule. And after Darius, Cyrus of Persia would rule. What this verse is saying, that God allowed Daniel to outlive his captors. 
The very people that put him in bondage would not live to see his funeral. That's a word for somebody here today. See, like God will cause you to even outlive the people who wish you harm. You'll be looking back on them like, yo, I remember them. That's wild. Um, I got to see this up close and personal. A couple weeks ago, I got to celebrate my grandmother's 100th birthday. Yeah, yeah. Love grandma. 100 years old. It was so funny because she would like actually kind of just giggle about it. Like, I was like, Grandma, you know how old you are. She was like, I'm 100. Yo, that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> she didn't say that. Yeah, I'm ad-libbing. Yo, that's crazy. But here's the thing. Her grandfather was a slave. When she was born, women couldn't vote. When she wanted to get a house in Philly, because of housing discrimination, she had to actually go through a white realtor to actually have him purchase the house on her behalf. When she moved in, for sale signs went up an entire block within a week. What she had to go through in her lifetime has been incredible, and yet God has caused her to outlive her oppressors. She can look back and see 17, 18 presidents that she can recount in her lifetime. Come and go, and yet she still stands. Here's the point. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, God is still in control. He's still there, y'all. He ain't go nowhere. <laughs> you see, because that, the other reason why that King Cyrus is important, because he would be the king that would actually, they had a whole different approach and philosophy about captors, captives. And he had actually allowed the people of Israel to go back to Judah. So even though Daniel never got the chance to go back home, he was able to live to see the king who would actually send his people back home. And see, that's important. Not just, oh, that's a nice story, but it's also significant because it was this hope of what was to come, this expectation that at the end of the day, the kingdoms of the world would not get the last word, that there would be a king that was coming, a king that was coming who would be king of kings, a king that was coming who would judge all the worlds, who would not only outlive four captors, but would outlive every single king and kingdom to come, including Rome, including the United States of America. And his name is Jesus. And see, in this king, in Judah, yeah, yeah, this king, he actually is the one, he was a better Daniel who can actually, we can all look to for that sense of hope. And this is what this king said in John chapter 17. He says, they are not of this world. He's praying for his disciples. And he prays and he says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you would sanctify them in the world. I need you to be light in the very world that we're in right now. That's what he asked. And so this story, this narrative, this perspective of exile that we see right here in Daniel, this has everything to do with us today. In fact, the apostle Peter actually in his letter calls the people he's writing to exiles. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Look at that, abstain, don't defile yourselves from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying, I, I, I ask you, I, I urge you to, 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 to resolve to not defile yourself so that you can actually be salt and light in the world around us. There is a war, there is a, a war, but that war is not 
with flesh and blood. It's within our very own souls. Will we be committed to being undefiled, to being countercultural, to being different, to being willing to put ourselves out there when what God has commanded us to do is completely different than what the world says, knowing that his restrictions are better than the world's provisions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word and be reminded of the fact that you are faithful. You are still in control. Whatever someone's going through here tonight that will cause them to question your sovereignty, God, we just pray that we would draw strength from your word from Daniel and remember that even in exile, even in captivity, even when it seems like there's just chaos around, that we serve a king who's still on the throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.